it wasn't about being an agent, right? I'm, I'm good at it, right? I can sell things, I know things, I'm quick, uh, and I love helping people, right, find their home. But the helping people is really that common thread because it was all about how do we train, develop, mentor people. I used to chase the ROI all the time, return on investment. And over the course of time, that has evolved into what I call return on life. Welcome everyone. This is Randy Dick here on the Return on Life podcast. And uh, if you've listened in before, you know that it's not about the ROI. At least it's changed for me. I used to always think it was about the ROI, but life kind of gets a gets into your skin there a little bit. And so now it's about the ROL for me, the return on life. And I love interviewing interviewing great guests about this. I have an amazing guest today, Jared Anton. And he's the managing director at an amazing company called Elgrin, which is also connected with Forbes Global Properties, which we're going to touch on in a bit. But um, Jared's had a 14-year career there. He's an amazing agent, actually lives outside of New York in a community called Bedford, which is about an hour north. And I just can't wait to dig into leadership and AI and uh, you know what's driving the market in New York, New York. So welcome here, Jared. Thank you, Randy. Pleasure to be here. Right on. Well, when you hear return on life, uh, what's the first thing that comes to your mind, Jared? It's a great question. So, um, you know, return on investment and ROI I always know, or when I was getting married, it was all about return on invitation. Um, but ROL is a good one too, because, you know, as I sort of round out where I am after being, you know, in my career for 14 years and, you know, moving from being an agent into more of the the day-to-day -day leadership, it's been very interesting to sort of sit back and, and I have two young kids and a great wife. And uh, as you mentioned, I, I live an hour outside the city. So being able to say, okay, how do I actually balance what I've been able to build, accomplish and achieve in my professional life, but also then be there, you know, for my family and be able to balance both of those things. It's been very important and also, you know, incredibly rewarding to be able to now experience and take a step back and see that I can be able to balance what I've built inside of real estate and parlay that or leverage that into still being able to provide for my family, but more importantly, being a key part of, of you know, their day to day in their lives. Wow, that's cool. So at some point you're heavily into transactional real estate or helping people buy and sell real estate. And then you made a conscious shift, a conscious shift to move to be more into the managerial side so you can spend more time with your family. That's that's really cool. That's correct. Yeah, I actually, um, I got into real estate in 2009. I was still in college uh, studying finance at James Madison University down in Virginia. And uh, I had remembered at that point in time, you know, real estate was a dirty word. And my, my finance uh, department lead basically said, you know, you wanna get into real estate, you should be in marketing, not finance. Um, but I did do a real estate concentration um, in undergrad, you know, in finance. And for me, when I, I first started working at another larger brokerage firm in New York City while I was in college, again, 2009, and my logic at the time was this is a really good networking opportunity. If someone's buying a million, two, you know, $3 million apartment, that's someone I want to know. And uh, I worked with these two great agents. I learned the ropes of, you know, how real estate works in the city. And I ended up getting a, a job the following summer, uh, right before graduation at Elgrin, where I am today, you know, now 14 years later. And I started originally as an agent there, but it wasn't about 
being an agent, right? I'm, I'm good at it, right? I can sell things, I know things, I'm quick, uh, and I love helping people, right, find their home. But the helping people is really that common thread because it was all about how do we train, develop, mentor people, right? It wasn't about just giving them a book and telling them to pick up the phone and, and going to, to do a hard sale. It was rather nurturing individuals to give them sort of this uh, amazing experience to be able to improve or elevate you know, the experience of buying, you know, property. And it's always incredibly stressful when you're transacting. And in New York City with co-ops and boards and all this stuff, we've made it even way more stressful. Um, but yes, for me, I, I did make a conscious decision fairly early in my career that I wanted to train, develop, manage, lead uh, more so than sell. Uh, I still do transact because I think it's really important to keep your feet grounded and stay fresh. Um, but we've been able to build really an incredible culture of incredible people uh, here at Elgren and, and do great things. So I, I'm excited to be part of it. That's cool. So me being that I've been to New York a few times, I always think it's all about the asset, not the experience, because, you know, it's the center of the universe when it comes to finance and money and all that kind of thing. But it is really about the experience as well, I would think, right? Yeah, I mean, we, we say in New York, you, you buy a bedroom and your living room is outside. Um, because the apartments are small. Um, but what is very interesting is we're in the experience economy, you know, coming out of COVID mm. and also with the, you know, next generation that, that's up and coming. And, and I spent some time at the end of June out in Vail, Colorado at the Forbes Global Properties annual owners retreat. Uh, and there was really good conversation, really good insights. But one of the key themes that permeated through that time was the experience economy. People want to buy experiences now, not things, right? During much of COVID, we were buying things, not even real things, you know, Bitcoin, all this other stuff, right? Um, but now you're looking at travel, you're looking at buying the experience. Uh, there was an article the other day talking about how, you know, domestic travel is now hurting because of the rise of international travel. But real estate is a beautiful thing, especially in New York City because it is both an asset, right? Something that's gonna you know, preserve value and hopefully make you money. Um, and it also gives you the experience to live a certain way or experience a different city or a different lifestyle, lifestyle. So for us, it's all about how do we parlay the real estate with the experience, not just once you own it, but also the experience of buying it or selling it. How do we make it as easy, as stress-free and as seamless as possible for our clients? Hmm. So I'm in Vancouver which is a you know, world-class city, as we would call it. Um, it's a very livable city. Um, it's a very expensive city to live in. And we have all these um, you know, groups uh, complaining about the price of real estate and how it doesn't cash flow or how it's so expensive to rent. But I mean, New York is New York. And, um, and, and is, there, is there investment opportunities there that cash flow? Or, or how would an investor look at a property from uh, from a purely investment standpoint in New York versus uh, maybe you know somewhere else that you know uh, a, an apartment is you know one hundred and fifty thousand two hundred fifty thousand three hundred fifty thousand versus uh, millions and millions and millions of dollars. That that's a great question. So real estate is certainly more expensive you know in New York City than the average. Um, but some of the beautiful things about the city is it's a, a very transparent and very liquid market. So it makes it easier for an investor to buy or sell or to be able to cash out than other, you know, less, uh, you know, big markets are. 
So when you look at the return on investment uh, for real estate in New York City, there's really two components. You have your actual yield, your cash on cash return, that's gonna be your net income. So your rent minus your, your expenses divided by the cost of the purchase price. Right now in the city, uh, prices are high for purchase, but prices are also high for rent. Uh, so we're seeing an average of about 2.8 to 3, 3.2% yield right or cash on cash return from renting so that's one half of the equation the other half of the return equation is your average appreciation uh, the average appreciation over the last 50 years in the city is about five to six percent so let's call it five and a half percent a year so if you put the two together based upon again your time in the market or your holding period on average an investor would see about eight percent right five plus three uh, eight, eight and a half percent, you know, total return. There have been a few articles and a few stories, you know, talking about New York City as the Swiss bank account, right, of, of the world, because you can store money here. And New York City, if you look at a long-term price trend, uh, and actually Elgrin Insights, that, that's a research division, published an article not too long ago, terming it as New York City is catastrophe proof, quote unquote. I hope we don't have to to test again, but we did this after, you know, 9-11, 2008 Lehman, and, you know, the COVID. And each of these times there were, you know, media pronunciations that, you know, New York City is dead or who wants to live in the city. And what zooming out tells you is that the city fell for a short period of time and only by a little amount and then quickly recovered. So if you zoom out and have a long enough hold period in our market, you will do pretty well, right? New York City, as we call it, is sort of this blue chip, you know, international destination, top five international destinations for real estate in the world. It's not going to rise super, super fast like we saw with, you know, Boise or Austin or Nashville, but it's also not going to then have that correction or come back down. There's safeguards in place with the buildings around how much liquidity, how much capital investors need, and that helps put a price floor. Yeah. I, I like the way you put that. Um, I never put the two together, the appreciation and the you know, the cash on cash to come up with a number. I work with a lot of investors as well. So I, I like the way you did that. Um, I've always said the cash on cash is the is the main course and the appreciation is the dessert and the meal. And That's so nice. uh, kind of play with that as well. But I think you're, you're, you're so bang on there. Uh, I think if you buy real estate in the top 10 cities in the world, you can pretty much, you know, bank that it will really never have a, have a, a serious depreciation in value as an asset, and it will just continue to appreciate because the, you know, the, the land is the commodity and uh, there's such a shortage in these larger cities. Like, you know, when's the last time that you've seen a, a vacant piece of property in New York City? I don't know, maybe, maybe you have, yeah. but I'm assuming there hasn't been much of a vacancy of land anywhere. That's correct. You're you're buying a building and knocking it down to redevelop or over you know a long period of time assembling. Um, but you know very simply, I I would label New York City's real estate market right now as discerning, but liquid. So the the buyers know what they want, but if you're priced correctly and you have something desirable, it will sell. And just to put in context of of taking your cash on cash and your appreciation, you're going to see in New York City compared to nationally a little bit lower of cash on cash return, but a little bit higher appreciation potential. So that's how that balances here. Mm -hmm. I know we're talking about return on life, but I really find uh, investing interesting. And um, so 
Are the majority of the buyers cash buyers or, or is there a lot that's leveraged through mortgages and debt? Yeah, so in aggregate, even, even when interest rates were you know relatively cheap or cheap, um, we still saw about 50% of the market uh, or the deals being cash purchases. And that's because we have a large portion of international buyers that have their own sort of financing uh, nuances. Uh, and then we also have a fair amount of investors coming into the market. Uh, now where interest rates are, we're seeing about 60, a little upwards of 60% of our deals being cash deals because again people are less willing to to finance at these rates now they may be taking out a liquidity access line or some other way to access funding but in terms of traditional straight mortgage we're seeing a declining share of that okay great so sticking with return on life um you know we're always looking for ways to make our lives maybe easier or better anyways and ai is really a hot topic right now is AI going to give us more return on life as real estate agents? Or how do you see AI playing out here in the next um, one to three years? So one, one to three years is a long time horizon. We're in the infancy you know, of the current AI boom. You know, Siri or Alexa were the initial foray you know, in the early AI. And ChatGPT sort of took the world by storm when it came out last fall. So mm -hmm. here we are eight, nine months after that and already a world you know, further where you're seeing all of these different technologies start to integrate you know, this AI technology. So we're definitely in its infancy, but it's a very, very exciting time. And I believe that there's a lot of different applications for this within the world of real estate, both for consumers so that it gives them a different way to search for real estate and a different way to access information at their fingertips. And for real estate agents, it helps them to delegate and elevate. It helps them to be able to offload the more mundane tasks, albeit very, very important tasks, notably with prospecting or helping to draft you know, certain documents or clauses or things like that. So, uh, and it lets a real estate professional be able to spend their time where it's most valued or most needed. And, and Elgrin, you know, our, our mission, as we say, is to humanize the world of real estate. But at the same time, we're incredibly tech forward and the two mesh because it's all about using technology to empower and enable the real estate agent to be smarter and more available to their clients when they need it. Um, so I believe that an agent will or should adapt to use AI. And by doing so, we'll put them ahead of the curve and allow them to do more with the same amount of time or do more with less time, if that's their decision. Awesome, I love that, uh, delegate to elevate. That's really, really great. So you've got a large training program, coaching program at Elgin, is that right? And that's are correct. you leading that yourself? Or are you part of that? Is that uh, something that you participate in? So I do participate in uh, our coaching. Uh, ben Willig, though, who is our director of sales, really runs point in that avenue. And coaching and development is really one of the key three tenors of who Elegrin is. The first is giving you that true partner in the operating system that you need to run your business. Mm -hmm. The second is our coaching and development to meet you where you are today and move you to where you want to be tomorrow. And we have a whole agent journey map, which we can talk about in a moment. Uh, and then the third tenor is that global exposure and the global amplification through our exclusive partnership with Forbes and Forbes Global Properties. Um, but back on the coaching piece, it's all about understanding 
where agents are. And, and we have this really fantastic agent journey map, uh, which starts from what we affectionately call unconscious incompetence, right? You just passed your real estate license. It's like when you first got your driver's license, you're so excited, you're behind the wheels, but you don't actually know what you don't know. And then it actually goes downhill a little bit to where you have conscious incompetence. So now you're aware, oh man, I really don't know how this works. And you're starting to figure it out, right? And then you're climbing this hill again, and it's all about saying, okay, like, which way is up? I, I'm trying to wrangle that bear. I got it. Like, I'm, I'm getting onto firmer ground. Like, all right. Then it's, how do I start doing it better? What are the systems? What are the processes that I need that allow me to make this sustainable for me? And that ties right back into the return on life. Because if you don't put the right safeguards in place, if you don't invest in the right resources, the right team around you, this is a losing battle. And once you start figuring out how you do it better, then hopefully not too long after that, you're generating more business than you can handle. And how are you going to work with that? Because either you're going to lose business, you're going to provide, you know, less than stellar service, which is not how you've gotten this far doing, or you need to figure out again, back to my favorite term, delegate and elevate. What is that team structure? Are you going to hand it off? Are you, do you have a team dedicated, you know, listing agents, buyers agents, you have the right, you know, operational support. And then as you keep moving and as you figure that out, you cross this imaginary line in our agent journey, which is really the crux of all this, where you go from working for your business to where your business starts working for you. And that's really, really important because in this business in, in the life of selling real estate for too long, if you don't do it right, you're putting in way more than you're getting out. But then all of a sudden you reach this aha moment where it's like, things are coming out of the woodwork, deals are clicking, this person calls you to buy, that person calls you to sell, and you start getting more out of it. And then everything that we are working towards in our agent journey is all about what is your end? Because very few people get into this business to be the best real estate agent they can be, and that's it. For some people, certainly. But for many, they want to parlay this into something else. Do they want to be a developer, an investor? Do they want to go and coach? Do they want to be a motivational speaker? Do they want to go own a, a vineyard and a bed and breakfast? That's my wife and I's retirement dream. So what is their end? And then ultimately it ends in this, what's your succession plan, right? If you were a doctor or an attorney, you'd sell your practice, you'd sell your patient load. Um, but here, no one really talks about a succession plan. And we've built a, a really easy and simple way to model it out. So if you're an agent that has 10, 20, 30, 40 years of, of relationships and connections, great, let's part you, partner you up with another really hungry agent who's gonna go and nurture those relationships, work those clients to the same degree that you would, and you'll have a financial benefit for it. So that's who we've built this full 360 agent journey. Um, and that allows us to identify where everyone is where they want to go, and what is that tailored coaching or development that they need then to get them in the next step? Jared, that's amazing. I love the journey map, what you just shared. Um, that is something I haven't heard of another brokerage really doing for any of their agents. And that that's magical, a succession plan, because most agents don't have a succession plan. Most agents don't have a way to actually monetize this thing called a real estate license beyond just, you know, trading time for money, time for money. And exactly. so to have that, that, um, that is significant. So love that. By the way, I love your 
your your analogy. It sounds like Deming's rule to me. <laughs> did you guys steal from Deming's rule? We we didn't, no. <laughs> so the unconscious, the conscious, the incompetent, the competent. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I play with that myself in coaching all the time. And I was going, oh my goodness, he's talking my language. It's all so awesome. <laughs> um that's great. Why why did why did the succession plan come out? Like something must have brought that to the surface to say we have to build a succession plan for our agents. Do you know yeah, the background of that? So it comes from a few points. I mean, one is anytime there's a crisis, so to speak, in our market. So again, I point back to the same things, 9-11, 08, uh, you know, COVID, when the market gets hard, you have a compression of, of salespeople, right? People will naturally leave the market, um, yeah. you know, when times are hard and enter the market when times are good. So we needed a way to say, okay, how do we deal with some people that may be more sensitive to COVID, right? Don't want to necessarily go out there uh, and, and be face-to-face, -face, but have really good connections and really good networks. How do we help them still, you know, leverage that and, and make money off of that? Uh, and it started there and it's carried forward now, obviously, as we come out of COVID to say, how do we help people be able to travel, experience different things? And how do we help them still monetize and service those relationships? Because everyone's and or everyone's succession plan looks differently. For some, it means they're just older, right? And for others, it means they could still be young, but their interests have moved beyond real estate. And again, tying this back to the return on life, you spend so much time trying to build this how do you actually monetize it for what it can, but still create the life you want to have? And it doesn't mean you have to slave away, you know, at the deal. And that's why we actually have three different personas that we look at our agents are. You have the originator who has the relationships. They're out there procuring them. They have the connections. They have the deals. We have doers, which do the day-to-day -day job of real estate agent, right? Here's Bob, Sam, or Sue. They want to buy, sell, or rent. Great. Go and do it. They know how to do that day-to-day -day, you know, job of an agent. And then we have supporters, whether that's a junior agent, a VA, a back office support, something that you know keeps the plate spinning. And again, you put all those three personas on our agent journey map, you generally move through personas as you move through the journey. But then also when you look back at our team building or coaching and development, how do we connect the right doer with the right supporter, with the right originator? Because you need all three to truly make this run. That's magic. That is magic. I run a team as well. And, uh, you know, we have pieces of that all the way through. But I think um, you've just given me some fantastic ideas how to bring it together and even make it more magical. So I love that. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, who's Jared in the quiet? <laughs> you when there's nothing standing in front of you, there's there's only selfish Jared. What is what's Jared doing in the quiet by yourself? So I, I haven't met quiet Jared in quite some time. Um, so <laughs> I would really love to find out. <laughs> um, but all kidding aside, I, I'm an avid golfer, although with, with two kids now, I don't get out there as much as I can. Um, but I do tell my so I have a son who's five and a half entering kindergarten and uh, a daughter who's 14 months who is finally now in the last three weeks sleeping through the night so i i feel anew again um it was a long journey <laughs> but uh and i tell my son affectionately you can either carry my bag 
or your bag, your choice, but you're carrying one of those bags and we're going to play golf. Um, so I do love playing golf. Um, my wife and I love traveling, seeing new places. We love uh, fine wine and trying new different, you know, wineries and things like that. And I'm really someone that just loves to be around people. We have a, a great close circle of friends. And um, it's, you know, your, your kids become that perfect social weave and, and social fabric because our friends become the parents of our kids' friends and everything like that. So just someone that likes to, uh, to have a good time, kick back and relax. Mm, that's awesome. It's often, I often um, talk about what's the cha change agent or the ingredient that you have um, to kind of keep it all going. So what's, what's some of your, your special superpowers to keep you know, the kids you know, satisfied and happy. You've got a beautiful wife. You're busy working. You're traveling to the city. Tra all that. How, you know, what what makes Jared tick, and what's some of your superpowers? So it's actually a very interesting question. My my wife and I, and we've been together half of our life. We met day one freshman year of college, literally oh. moving day, uh, and started dating. You know, later on in freshman year. But it's funny because the two of us are incredible type A, go 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 people. Uh, and again, because we've been together for so long, the majority of our relationship has been around what's next, what's to come, right? Get through college, graduate, you know, first job, buy a house. But so after my daughter was born, right, and we wanted two kids, we had a boy and a girl, we had the house. Like I, I went to this moment where, which was very unusual for me, a quasi sort of depressed state because what was next, right? Like, what was I pushing towards? I, I had this moment and where for my wife, it was this immense calming, like, okay, I can relax and enjoy. For me, it was like, holy crap, what am I pushing towards? It, it's retirement in 45 years, but I don't actually know how to say that word. So like, I had this moment where I was like, I don't actually know what I'm pushing for, right? And it, it was this sort of untethering of what has been driving me forward, which actually forced me to step back reorient, re-index into the conversation where we started off this podcast, be able to actually say, okay, let me take a step back. Let me understand now how the dots have been connected and how my decision to pivot from, you know, day-to-day -day transacting to more of the leadership and management has allowed me actually to now live the life that I've designed it to be. And it's okay to be selfish to your prior question, to enjoy the fruits of that labor. That doesn't mean that I'm lazy. That doesn't mean I'm not working. No, it means how do I protect my time, my family, you know, my own sanity and be able to say, okay, this is what I'm doing now. My, my purpose has changed. My anchor has changed and my motivator has also changed. And it did take me in all fairness, some time to get around that. But now that I have, you know, it, it's been a, a supercharged forward and it certainly helped, you know, when professionally, you know, we got rocked by, by the changing market. So that that's quick to knock you back. And then we had this amazing accelerant of Forbes and Forbes Global Properties. And we, we went through a full rebrand and, and that has been an amazing ride for my firm, Elegrin, to really elevate uh, in the business, in, in our market and, and recruit some really incredible agents and it's still going uh, and really just level up the game. And that has been another thing that has, again, given me renewed focus or renewed vigor on the professional front. Hmm. You know, there's, uh, there's the gifts that we have can be the greatest curse or the greatest gift. And then there's this other word called settle, where you know, we see so many people settling, but we can also be at the other end of that where we never settle. Like we never, we never just go, okay, yeah. 
and we just keep driving, driving, driving. And and I've seen, you know, uh, I'm a driver as well. And it's gotten me into trouble at times because I'm just so committed to the drive that I miss the experience or I miss out on something that was way more beneficial. So I sometimes I'd be careful. So I really, really appreciate uh, that share that you gave. Um, I want to go back to Forbes property and how that's really significantly changed what you guys do and, and how you attract great agents. Maybe elaborate on that a little bit, because I know that's a really big piece for you guys. Yeah, it's been huge. So Forbes Global Properties started in, in 2020, and it's the residential real estate arm that's connected back to Forbes. Uh, right now, they're uh, across about 55 members across 22 countries, uh, 440 office locations, and about 14,000 agents in total. And what they've done is they've selected one leading you know, independent brokerage firm in key markets across the world that they've partnered with. And for Elogren, what it's done is a number of things. One is, you know, we built the business on hiring really great people, giving them the right tools, resources, mentorship, coaching, and development. But we never invested in traditional marketing or traditional branding. We invested back in the people and the business. So being able to take the operating system and the coaching and development and that intentionality and bolster that on with arguably borrowed credibility that is Forbes, right? Internationally, you know, renowned international recognition with this incredible amplification and megaphone for properties has been unparalleled in what it's done. We've doubled our listing volume and doubled our average listing price last spring to this spring, right? On the heels of Forbes, uh, we're hiring incredible agents that are being able to say, okay, I want to be able to leverage the power of Forbes and I love your new tech stack because we just relaunched a whole new tech package earlier this year. And the coaching and development is something that, you know, other firms are just not doing in-house and being able to put it all together where we can be that true partner with our agents because we believe the independent contractor model is broken, right? You know, you have bundlers and unbundlers and Elegant has sort of come on in this middle part by saying, okay, let's invest in you. Let's partner with you from a strategy execution perspective and then from understanding how do you want to move your business forward um but forbes has been really really beneficial in helping to again put that name next to us that has gotten us in the door and then as properties have gotten harder to sell they've been able to give us just incredible opportunities to be able to get exposure for these properties through the curated forbes network very cool um that is just amazing. So it's actually helped in so many ways, bringing in better agents as well. Has it pushed anybody away? Because you know, when you make changes, people sometimes don't buy into that. Has it actually uh, pushed some people away in some cases? And maybe those are the people you didn't really want in the office anyways. But uh, is it mainly been a magnet of attraction or there's been some repulsion as well? So it's been largely a magnet of attraction. Have we lost a few people? Sure, but there are arguably people that weren't producing business anyway. Um, so it, it's been a, a huge net positive that has truly, you know, far uh, exceeded any of my wildest expectations for what it could have done. Um, because it gave us, if nothing else, the, the courage and the comfortability and the awareness to own who we are in the marketplace and go out there and, and tell all about it because we never really told our story before. Um, so it's been this incredible uh, you know, magnet of attraction because it's now unified many, many things that people want. Mm -hmm. 
COVID was such a, an amazing crucible moment. And it's probably, I'm thinking that it, it benefited you in so many ways uh, when you look back. Uh, what are some of the moments that, that going through all that was like, oh my goodness, and then, oh my goodness. Um, can you share any of those? Because I think New York was kind of epicenter to so much. I have a few friends in New York and it was, they said it was just like so crazy. Like you looked down the streets and there wasn't a soul on it. Um, how did that all play out? So that it's very interesting. One is I'm very thankful I didn't live in New York City proper during COVID. You know, being up in in Westchester with the yard was good. Uh, two, I will never bicker about the cost of daycare because when daycare was closed for three months, uh, best marketing for daycare. Um, but in all seriousness, um, you know, the city was interesting because our office, you know, is is three blocks south of Times Square. In fact, you can see Times Square right behind me if this wasn't here. Um, and it was deserted and dead. And if you if you looked on the media, right, they would only show you pictures of Times Square. But if you went to other areas that were true neighborhoods where people actually live, you know, West Village, Upper East Side, Upper West Side, they were more lively than ever before in some ways because you had this street dining and all this stuff and the park. So it, it transformed life in a very interesting way. Uh, it also made everyone think about their space differently, and that's not unique to the city. Um, but was, what was interesting is in the early days of COVID, everyone thought it was a density issue, right? Because it hit New York before it hit many other parts of the country. What we quickly learned is it's not a density issue, it's just a transit hub issue. So people generally enter through you know, New York or a few other key cities uh, in the country. So the, the outflow quickly then replaced, and it was this interesting thing where you had a lot of locals moving into Brooklyn and Brooklyn was already you know, 2015, 2016, 17, 18, starting to gentrify, redevelop, new construction, new things pushed there. And COVID was a big accelerant for Brooklyn because people were able to move there, you know, get more space, less density, more air, you know, for the money. And then New York's or Manhattan actually became incredibly cheap from a rental perspective for a period of time, because if you, you know, remember New York City is also about 60, 65% rentals, uh, so it is one of the few cities where there's actually more rental housing stock than there is for purchase. So the outflux didn't mean that people were selling and leaving. It's literally the lease was up and they were going to leave, right? Like why renew if, if you didn't have to be? So then landlords starting offering renewals or new leases at very, very low rents where you can actually live in Manhattan for cheaper than Brooklyn, Queens, Jersey, or, or different places. So you had this uh, amazing pouring back in out of just a simple economics perspective. And then life started coming back and you had the vaccines and the, the first tranche of trying to get returned to work. We'll see what happens with the third you know, attempt uh, this September. Uh, and New York just started picking back up. It is an incredibly resilient place. And as soon as you can start enjoying all that New York has to offer, people want to be here. So never count New York down and out. That's right. If, if there's one thing that we learned, we, we learned which businesses are bulletproof through this. And um, obviously, real estate is pretty much bulletproof in the right locations. There's no doubt about that. You're involved heavily in leadership. Do you have a leadership style or somebody that has influenced how you lead? Is there something that you can share with our listener that says, you know, this is the way Jared leads? Yeah, so we, I've had the, the benefit and, and the lucky fortune of having a wonderful CEO who has invested in professional development for himself, for myself, for the team. So I've had a few, you know, different coaches over the year uh, or over the years. But as a firm, we operate 
uh, on an operating system called Traction. Uh, so it's been a really good way. We've been doing this since about 2018 to align all the different department heads. And it's all about, you know, what is the, the vision traction organizer? So who is the business? What are the one, three, five-year goals? And then it breaks it down into these quarterly rocks that each of the departments align on. Of like, these are the things that we're going to do the two, three, four, five things that are gonna move the business forward. And that's been a really good way for our company to work. Um, now, obviously, you know, we, we are to some extent reactionary, right? To the market, to what our agents need and things like that. So it is so important, whether you're running a brokerage firm or you're running you know, a single agent or a team, to be able to stay grounded with what you want to accomplish and where you wanna go, right? That mountain for this reason with these troops, with this battle plan, helps keep you grounded because the enemy, back to the return on life, is being reactive, not proactive. If you wanna get there and you wanna get there quicker with greater degree of certainty, you have to be proactive. If you wake up every morning and you don't know what's you know, gonna come and you're operating in this reactive mindset, you're constantly gonna get beaten and battered around. So one of the things that I always do is at the end of every day, I look ahead at my calendar. What's on tomorrow? What do I need to prep? What do I need to know? Because for me, I start the next day, the night before, and that's one little way that I, you know, maintain the proactivity in my own life. Mm, love that, love that. I have a, a thing of uh, compression and urgency. I always have to have urgency and then compress whatever it is. And what you're doing when you're already looking at tomorrow's work in the evening is you're already putting that into an urgency mode and then you're gonna compress it the next day. I love that. Really, really love that. Um, we've talked a little bit about return on life and some of the things that you've done. Um, a balanced life is is kind of like this mystery. Is it unicorns and rainbows? And I've heard the saying, you know, balanced equals broke. But I some I get a sense that you've got kind of a pretty good balanced life. Uh, yes, no, maybe a little, maybe not. It's funny, I, I gain every day an increasing awareness of that fact, right? It is so easy to, you know, lose sight of, of what you actually have or fall into the social media trap or these different things. But taking that step back and truly assessing and, and going to that old fashioned, you know, pro and con list on paper, without a doubt, I, I really am incredibly lucky, fortunate, and, a, and more importantly, appreciative over you know what I've been able to accomplish, who I've surrounded myself with, or who chooses to be surrounded by me. Um, so I, I think so, um, but I don't take it for granted, and I still you know have this inner drive to how do I do better? How do I help more people around me? How do I you know move us all you know sort of forward? Mm -hmm. Do you have a very strict schedule, time blocking? Uh, what's it look like if I if I could open up your schedule right now? What would it look like? Yeah, so the, the number one thing I did, and this came out of a coaching exercise about four or five years ago, was actually color code my calendar. So I, I use Google Calendar, and I have a different color for different things, whether it's business development, whether it's recruiting, whether it's you know agent management or you know executive function. I have a different color for each of these things. And the reason is it allows me to understand where is my time being spent and back to traction of my rocks. I have a certain commitment to myself and the business to spend a certain amount of time in certain areas to do certain things. So it, it's a really good way to sort of understand that. Um, two, there are certain things that you know get done at certain 
times of the day or certain you know days of the week. And uh, I am a creature of habit to some extent, not necessarily by fault, but for benefit. Um, one of the things that you know we're always doing internally is is I send out what I affectionately call my Saturday email. Uh, and with Jason Thomas, who's our head of research, we write this whole weekly market update and we also do one on a monthly basis. But it's so important to be able to aggregate all the things that are happening in the market here, as well as things that are happening internally at Elegrin. And I compile everything up that I want to send during the week into one Saturday email that I send over a cup of coffee in the morning. Uh, and then that is is given to agents to be able to go and repurpose on their social and share. So there are certain things that I do have set up that, you know, this happens this time, this happens this time, and uh, a whole lot of flex in between. Mm, love it. The one thing for a real estate agent is prospect, prospect, prospect. What is your one thing, Jared? Are you still prospect, 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 or is it a different one thing? It's yeah, so prospects are important, but for me, it's really uh, continuing to leverage those relationships, you know, within my network. Uh, my age cohort is in that place for their, you know, trading out of that first place, getting into that second place, maybe, you know, moving to the suburbs. So prospecting is always important. Um, but for me, truthfully, the number one thing is it's about taking the step back now and trying to actually remove myself from the weeds or from the go, go, go. So how do you actually take a step back and take stock, right? I'd rather something be done better, but in less amount of, or better, but take an extra minute or two, which has not always been the case for, you know, my professional career. But at this point, it's like, all right, how do I make sure I do it right? How do I have that 360 degree view? So if I'm doing something or I'm making a decision, how does that affect those that are around me and being able to now to play out and raise up my head beans. That's been something that, you know, took a little bit of time to be able to do intentionally. But now as it's become part of, of my day is coming a bit more naturally. Mm. And that's really about being a student of the game as well um, and recognizing that. Do you do a lot of self-audit? Self-audit on, on yourself, on, on, on the business, on your business, uh, maybe even on your personal life. Uh, do you ever self-audit yourself? Not always in the most productive way, but I certainly do. Uh, and it's funny you bring that up and you talk about a student. So um, my boss and the owner of the company, Michael Rossi, you know, has for a number of months repeated the same lesson to me. And it, it finally clicks and, and his kids go to private school. And I was a byproduct of, of the public schools. And he talks about how as a public school student, you know, you were taught something, then you took a test, then you moved on. Is like in private school, you'll you'll be taught something, you'll take the test, and then you'll be given the option to take the test again. And what's important and, and where this comes through in the context of this conversation, also for me in my professional life, is you can't just move on, right? It's not the test is done, you throw it away, now you're on to the next thing, you can forget it, right? It it, it actually is in the self-awareness piece some of the flaws about how our public schools are done. And don't even get me talking about the stuff they don't teach you about financial literacy and that stuff. But putting that aside, it's all about you don't have to redo the test. No, you did it pretty well or you didn't do this that well. But hey, you don't have to do it all. You just have to fix 40 percent or 10 percent or 20 percent. So that lesson is something that has started clicking of late. Uh, it probably only took about six months, but I now understand it and know how to to use it and internalize it where it's like, okay, you did it, 
you got certain feedback. Now, how do you jigger? What do you keep because it worked really well? What do you get rid of because that didn't really work? And this is the little bit that you can finesse and tweak and get a lot better result from. Mm, I like that. That is, that's a great takeaway. Great takeaway. Uh, what do you think the future of real estate is for, for us as agents? Um, is our position secure? AI going to change that? Um, will it always be needed to help in that relational transaction of real estate? So I would love to say yes. <laughs> so I, I, I think in it, it's market by market and place by place. And it also is mostly dependent on the individual. So I believe that with, you know, increasing information at hand, I mean, if, back up one step if you look at the rise of zillow for instance right mm. you had that first information change so originally real estate agents were the gatekeepers to information now they are the pathway by which information gets made sense of right they help you understand it. they help you break it down so we as professionals have had to re-index the way that we're operating with the consumer no longer are they coming to you trying to find out what's on the market no they know these 10 things are on the market and they want you to answer these very specific questions so with ai it's going to give consumers even more information maybe to some extent more information that you even have yourself so then how do you use your knowledge, your expertise, and your professionalism to help them make sense of that information and create that experience by which they transact. I believe, especially in a high touch, high net worth market like New York, people want that white glove service. So I think that real estate agents that again, can adapt, can provide you know, high expertise, high touch service will do very well. You know, In some middle you know, parts of the country, suburbia, can you, disintermediate can the blockchain replace brokers maybe to some extent probably yes um but i think what's going to happen is you're going to have let's say a similar level of transactions i hope in the short term you may actually have a bit more if, if interest rates drop let's call it 150 basis points i think you're going to have this great reshuffle where it's actually going to increase the amount of transactions similar to what we saw during covid but we can pin back to that in a moment um but i believe you're going to have a similar amount of transactions but what AI and what technology is gonna do, it'll allow the agent to handle more transactions in a shorter amount of time. So you're gonna have this compression, right? You're gonna have this you know, flight to quality that's going to occur where you're gonna have larger teams, larger agents that are doing more value. So you're gonna have a smaller share of agents controlling more of the activity. And, and this is no different than what you've seen in any other industry you know, since the, the industrial revolution. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so true. And um, I mean, I've often had clients that are way more knowledgeable of what's happening in the market. You know, they've just because they're devouring it because they're, they're addicted to whatever they're looking for. And I may not be in that lane at that time. However, they still need an agent to take a complicated situation and simplify it so they can see how to get to the other end. And really, we're just... Yeah. We need to be really, really good at communicating complicated things and making it really, really simple for people. And then of course, giving them an experience and will forever be needed, forever be needed. That's never good. And it's funny, so when, when I bought my house, being a real estate agent, I didn't find it. My wife actually found all four places we've ever lived in, uh, but she found our house on Zillow. It was for sale by owner. So here I am representing myself 
the sellers representing their subs. There was no one in between us. I could be a great coach. I was a horrible player when it was my own deal and the stress and everything. So it is so important how much you need that real estate agent, if nothing else, to be that sponge, to be that person that can absorb the friction, the tension, the stress and repackage it to the other side. So true. Yeah, so true. Um, talk about supply and demand in New York and how it is today and where it's going and what you see maybe uh, in the nation. Um, everybody I talk to has got this supply and demand conversation happening in their head. What's happening for you, Jared? Yeah, so I'll give you the New York specific and then we can broaden it back out. Um, New York City is holding at about an average level of supply. If you look over the last decade, we're, we're in that average range, about the low 7,000. So we don't have a supply shortage. Uh, obviously, we anyone will say that we don't have enough good inventory, but that's the case anywhere, anytime. So we have an average level of supply um, because there's a fair amount of just natural turnover that happens in New York when you have a lot of non-end users, investors, things like that, international buying. Uh, it's been a good time for some, you know, international buyers to take a profit. And while the dollar has been strong, be able to, you know, onshore that into their native currency. Demand, uh, we actually have the Elogren Forbes let's, Global let's, Properties Consumer Sentiment Index. Let's just stop there for a second. This is interesting. See, when you've got um, international owners, the currency plays a, a, a part in that too. We have that in Vancouver as well. Um, yeah, a lot of blocked all foreigners from purchasing for the next 18 months. <laughs> yes. So that's interesting. Uh, great point. Okay. So carry on. Yeah. So we, we've built this consumer sentiment index that allows us to track against a seasonally adjusted pre COVID baseline, you know, how much demand there is on a weekly basis. And what we're seeing is New York city as a whole is incredibly above the baseline, more demand than the historical average. And the summer has been busier than normal. If you break it down by borough, you know, Brooklyn has been way overshooting. It's been incredibly hot as again, you have people continuing to move in there, either leaving the city or instead of moving to the suburbs as many would have otherwise. Uh, Manhattan is holding right about uh, parity with that historical baseline. So we're certainly not below, but we're not as high as, as Brooklyn has been. Um, it's moving, right? Back to the comment before, it's discerning, but liquid. Uh, there's not deals coming over the tranches. Uh, it's, it's sort of a lose-lose. Our rents are very high and interest rates are very high. So, you know, do you buy, do you rent? Um, you know, in New York City, because it is so expensive, you usually buy by bedroom size. So are you buying a one-bedroom, two-bedroom, or three-bedroom? And our holding periods also tend to be a little bit shorter, about five years on average for condos and about seven years on average for co-ops. So that's also down from the national average that's, you know, closer to six, seven, or, or even 10 years. If you look at the national market, um, we're seeing a lot of constrained in inventory. Why? Because where are you going to go if you're a seller, right? And, and there's a huge amount of the population that has a sub, you know, 5% interest rate, a sub 4, sub 3% interest rate. If rates are at 65 or 7%, the, the arbitrage, the spread is just too large to be able to say, okay, let me sell and then let me go buy. Why do I want to go and do that unless I need to? So what, what we're seeing is the lack of want to buyers. We're seeing a lot of need to buyers. Do I have a family change, baby, divorce, marriage, job change? Is there some reason I need to transact? 
or do I want to transact? The, the want to transact, in my opinion, and what we're seeing is getting kicked to this pent up demand that's forming. Mm -hmm. And when you see rates, in my opinion, again, drop to let's say five, five and a quarter, maybe even five and a half, you're gonna have this great reshuffle and this great unlocking that in my opinion is gonna be two to three times larger than what happened you know, during the COVID piece. Cause you're now having had people stay in their homes longer than they may have wanted to. But once it becomes financially possible, you're gonna have an influx of inventory, but it's not just an influx of inventory. You're also gonna have an influx of demand because those sellers are gonna be buyers on the other side of the coin. So you're gonna have this great reshuffle that for real estate agents, I think is gonna be really, really good. In the short term, what it's done is it's kept a price floor in place in the face of you know, rising interest rates, which effectively increase the cost of, of real estate, Prices have stayed or increased. That That is counter to Econ 101, but it's true because demand has stayed and supply has decreased, right? So I don't think that you'll see prices drop when interest rates drop. If anything, it may actually accentuate it the other way. Yeah, great share. That's a great, great share. Well, let's finish it off this way. Um, Elgrin and Jared, I think you guys are the best in the world. Or is there somebody better than you? Who's Who's the best in the world at what you guys do? I don't know. You you talk to a few more people. I don't know. Let me know. <laughs> well, I, I love what you shared about your your training program, your your journey for the agent. Um, you know, being connected with Forbes, like just everything sounds like you've really got it dialed in. So I'm really impressed. Really impressed. And we and we have some incredible you know partners and other members across the Forbes network that we've been able to you know work with and, and share best practices and be able to transact. So we're certainly not in this alone. We have some really good people that are surrounding us and, you know, helping us to do what we do. So really appreciate you having me on, giving me the opportunity to share some words of wisdom. And thank you so much for what you do. Well, we're going to have a little bit of a speed round first before I let you go. Perfect. So All right. Speed round here. So, you know, if, uh, if you could do fine dining, takeout, skip the dishes or home cooked meal, what's shared having? Uh, I like to, it depends, uh, home cooking though. Okay, home cook. Um, you can go out with just your wife or just your kids or together for a meal. Just my wife. <laughs> love it, love it, love it. Um, what's your favorite band? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I, Matchbox 20 was the first uh, one I went to uh, concert. And I, they still stick in my mind as someone that mm. I love to listen to. It's always the first, um, you know, one of the first ones for me was Brian Adams. Uh, okay. And uh, I saw him in Vegas last year. Oh, my goodness. It was so good. Um, audible or book? Uh, book until it doesn't work. And then you have to audible. <laughs> okay. And last question, a little bit of a trick question. If you were a scratch and sniff sticker, a scratch and sniff sticker, what would you smell like? Uh um that's a great question uh grit i don't know what grit smells like but grit sounds like it could work i just say that sounds like a little bit of, of, of fresh dirt and lumber yeah. and concrete all wrapped up in a way yeah <laughs> awesome awesome hey well thank you so much for being such a great guest here great insight and uh, love what your company's doing so um carry on and just keep crushing it Thank you, Randy. Right back at you. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Jared. Take Thank care. Thank you.